Good morning, Grace Hill. It's good to be with you. My name is Evan, one of the pastors. Just grateful to be with you this morning. We are in a series called A Weary World Rejoices. I want you to say that three times very quickly. All right. Yes, it's a tongue twister. It's one of the greatest, I think, lines in our Advent catalog of songs that we'll sing. And this morning, we're really going to investigate how can a weary world rejoice? And we've been in this series, and Alan's preached the past two weeks. In the first week, he set up our series, and he was talking about the incarnation of Jesus. The doctrine of the incarnation basically means, for anyone who isn't familiar with that big word, it's like it's answering the question, what is God like? What's he like? And God says, I'm going to come and tell you. I'm going to put on flesh and bone. I'm going to walk around in this world, and I'm going to obey God the Father in a perfect way for you. That's what the incarnation is all about, who God is. And what does that mean for us? And last week, Alan preached, and his whole thing was that Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, its experiential reality for us, as we looked in the book of Luke, was that he sees us. It was a really powerful message, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I really encourage you, go back and listen to that. But this morning, we're going to pick up on a question, kind of like, what's God like? What's God really like? And I was thinking about this, and the idea that God sees us is, is, and this wasn't really the sum total of Alan's sermon last week, but the idea that someone important sees you is something I think we can all relate to in some way, shape, or form, right? And I was thinking about it in this way, right? Like significant people we're aware of in this world, right? Taylor Swift is selling out gobs and gobs of stadiums. She's a significant person. And guess what? She might even see one of us, right? The millions of adoring fans, and she might wave back at you, and it's like, Taylor Swift saw me. Oh my gosh. Or... LeBron James, if you go to a game, you might be able to see him. If you get close enough and you're fortunate, he might like give you a, what's up? You're like, that LeBron James, like what up to me? How significant is that? Or like for me, what I long for, and don't judge me and don't send me an email, like Bono, I've been to a million U2 concerts. Sometimes I wish he'd call me up on stage and sing with or without you. But he does that in every concert. And guess what? That's pretty cool, right? He sees someone. He sings to someone. But here's the reality of these significant people when they see us. They don't know us. Taylor Swift doesn't know you. LeBron James doesn't know me or you. Bono, he doesn't know me. But the crazy reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that God doesn't just see us. The most significant person in history He also knows us. And we're going to look at that today. We're going to study that today. And the problem, though, that this, I think, begets, and this is going to be on the screen, this is kind of the problem I think we're going to have to work through in our text this morning. The problem is, if someone really knows me, they'll leave me. See, like Taylor Swift or any of these significant people, even if they got a chance to know us, they might not like us. Ouch. That would be really hard. Bono might not want to sing to me. I don't understand why, but that would be painful. But here's the reality. I think we're all walking around trying to answer this question in some way, shape, or form. If someone really knows me, much less God himself, he's certainly going to leave me. And I think at some level, all of us walk around every single day with that question churning in us, whether we're conscious of it or not. 
how we show up in our marriages, how we show up in our relationships with one another, how we show up here to church, and then certainly how we read our Bibles and we think that how God shows up and handles us and thinks about us. And see, one of the things I want to just talk about this morning, as we'll see in our text, is I think that Scripture is going to point out to us that sin, sin has a payload like a missile does. And its payload is fear and guilt and shame. In 2005, I met, I didn't meet, but in 2005, I was very serious with a girl named Stacy, and she's in this room. And I was so excited, and I can't share because I don't have two hours, but we have a, I have a very checkered past. And anyway, long story short is we had a round one and we had a round two. But, and to get to round two, you need to know this part of the story. I had flaked out on our first part of a relationship, and I'd really hurt Stacy. And in 2005, I can't share all the details, but we basically got to this point where we were going to see the Polar Express together. And it was supposed to be like 15 to 16 different people, and it ended up just being three of us. And it was her and her brother. So it was really awkward. And she was like, hey, by the way, you don't need to come, just, just so you know. And I was like, no, no, I'll come. So we go, and again, I had messed things up royally, so we just were having a friendship at this point that she was tolerating me in some ways. So we're at Polar Express, and I got to admit to you, all I know is I got to the train part, and then the rest of it I don't remember much. Because as I was sitting there, I was really thinking, I really, I really want to be with this person. And I could feel all of the shame of what I had done before, how I had hurt her. And I was thinking of the movie for the rest, I don't know, it's like a three-hour movie. It's a long movie. Because all I know is the train started, and then my mind went with this. And I was like, there's no way that she would possibly take me back. None. Evan, stop. God, please take these feelings away for this woman. I don't, I, no, I can't. So anyway, long story short, we get back. I don't know how. Stacy will have to remind me of this. But somehow, we're at her house, and I'm dropping her off. And this thing keeps coming up again. It's like, dude, you need to ask. Just give it a shot. And I was like, okay, one of two things are going to happen. I'm going to walk away with a black eye, or she might, she might say, I'll give you another shot. Well, she gave me another shot. Several months later, we're into 2006, and I am like head over heels for this woman. I know she's the person I'm supposed to marry. I'm super excited, and she's slowly warmed up a bit and seen some changes in me. But it came to this point, and this is what I'm going to get. This is the, the point of this, how shame has a payload, these missiles that are aimed at us. We got to this part where I had to start thinking about, oh, there's some things in my past like kind of like my sexual history that I was like, oh man, if I'm going to try to marry this woman, she deserves to know all about me, who I am, what I love, all the things about me, especially this part. And let me be honest with you, that idea of shame having missiles and a payload that's going to say like, if she really knows me, she's going to leave me. Man, that, I think those missiles were in flight and I was like, oh gosh, I was, I was cringing. I was nervous. I was scared. And Stacey would even use the word. She's like, yeah, when you shared that with me, I could tell you withdrew. I was already priming for her to say, no, I'm going to leave you. Well, long story short, we're married. But it was one of the most beautiful, powerful realities in my life. And the text we're going to look at today, I think, brings up the exact same thing of how God is and how he relates to us in our shame. Because see, just like Stacy, Stacy looked at me and when she came back and she had worked through that and processed everything, she said, I love all of you. 
And I'll never forget, even for me, at 26 years of age, it was one of the first times I'd experienced the grace of God in a very tangible way. Of all these things that I was so ashamed of and was felt so guilty for and, and had to lay those things out to be known is really what to, to die. And I was afraid that I was going to die in a million different ways and I was going to be alone and much less embarrassed with the people she may have shared and processed that with. But she said, I love you, all of you. Shame's payload of guilt, fear, and this hiding is really effective. And really, as we see in the scriptures, the story of the scriptures say it's one of Satan's most effective weapons against us that gets used over and over again. If someone really knew me, they'd leave me. I want you to turn to John 4, verse 7. We're going to start in John 4, verse 7. If someone really knows me, they'll leave me. Now, as you're turning to John chapter 4, verse 7, I want us to just realize real quick, John's whole point, the entire book of John, John actually lays this out in in, uh, chapter 20. He says, this is the whole point of why I'm writing this down for you guys. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the one that we're going to read in chapter 4 this morning. But these are written, everything that he's just said, including chapter 4, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's God like? The incarnation, the incarnation of God answers what God is like. And John is saying, I'm writing this so you know who Jesus is. You know what God is like. And we are gonna get a, we're going to get a very significant glimpse of what God is like in Jesus' interaction with a woman. So John chapter 4, verse 7. And I want us to know this. Did you know that what we're about to read is the longest conversation recorded that Jesus has? This account with the woman in Samaria, it is the longest recorded conversation in the entire scriptures that Jesus has with anybody, even his disciples. Now that says something about what we should pay attention to. This interaction, John wants us to know, this is significant. And what I want to do is I want to set up this entire chapter that we're going to work through together, almost like we're reading a book, all right? So I want to just set this up. So the first chapter, the setup. All right, y'all ready? The setup. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just want to note, this just proves what we all know. It takes one woman to do the work of 12 men. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What is God like? Immediately what we see with Jesus is he's starting to slow. Remember that payload of shame, those missiles that Satan uses? All right, they're already set up here. This woman's got them already set up. We're going to find out what those are in a few moments. But these missiles, this payload of shame is already set. It's already aimed at this woman. And she knows it and Jesus knows it. And what Jesus is doing is just being tender. He's God himself. God incarnate is just asking this Samaritan woman for a drink of water. We see a tired, we see a thirsty Jesus. We see a hum, the God-man 
needing something that we all need because he's just like us that our scriptures want to point out over and over. But as this story unfolds, we recognize that Jesus has a very, very clear and specific mission. And he knows this Samaritan woman's deepest need. And here's the thing that we need to do in this text. We need to read ourselves, not the Samaritan woman. We need to read ourselves as a Samaritan woman in this context. As you read through this, think of yourself as Jesus engaging with you, just like he is engaging with this woman from Samaria. He knows her deepest needs. He's also breaking every single custom that would be known to the Jewish people of that time. Everything he's doing to welcome a woman to himself as a Jewish rabbi. Jewish rabbis weren't able to be able to speak to a woman in public, much less even someone in their own family. So Jesus immediately is doing things, and this woman knows it, and she's like, man, and we're going to see even the disciples recognize. like They're marveling, like, hey, what are you doing? We're going to read that in a little bit. But Jesus is breaking down all of these things. And four times our text in that one couple verses we read, he says that this woman is a Samaritan. Four times. That means it's really significant. That John wants us to get, hey, he is talking to a Samaritan woman. Now, why is that so important? A little bit of history. But after King Saul and King David and King Solomon, Israel got divided into two kingdoms. Right? The Samaritan woman would know all of this. This is the context of it. But Israel gets divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. The northern had uh, ten, and ten kingdoms, and the, the south had two. And Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. In 722 BC, the Assyrians, the Assyrians come and wipe out all of the northern kingdom. And basically, they leave in this northern kingdom where we are right now, the Samaria area. They leave basically the, the sick and the poor there. They leave, they leave, that's all they leave there, all right? And, and they do that intentionally. All these pagan nations have come in and they've intermarried with these people called the Samaritans and they become this mixed race of people. And this mixed race in the northern kingdom is a bit abhorrent to those Jews in the southern kingdom. And so this deep animosity is occurring between the north and south kingdom, both being Israelites, but one seems to think they're better than the other. And the Samaritans are viewed as very, very low. King Cyrus, after he releases the, uh, the southern kingdom from Babylon back into the southern kingdom, they seek to rebuild the city and the temple walls. And some people from the north came down to help rebuild the temple. And the southern people say, nope, get out. We don't want you here. And so Samaritans go back north and they build their own temple in Mount Gerizim. And this is where we find our context today. This is why it's so important that he says Samaritan four times. Do you realize we would need to understand the deep distinction, the idea that racism and prejudice is, is, is existing in this time is really important. They hate each other. And so this is the context we find Jesus, we find God himself coming into. What a mess. And Jesus shows a tenderness to this woman's social and cultural context. God himself. What's God like? This is what God is like. He comes to this unclean pagan person and according to the Jews and, and he says to them, and this is what the woman even says, she goes, why are you asking me for a drink? See, this is the setup. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to do. He wants to show her something. The scriptures would say that Jesus is like this. He's gentle and he's lowly of heart. And he's intentionally coming after this Samaritan woman. And to show her that he not only sees her, but he knows her. Jesus is intentional. What kind of God does that? 
one who is easy to be around, who doesn't see the distinctions that sin has created for each of us. What's kind of God is like that? A loving God. Chapter two, the bait and switch. Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is after this woman. It's like the bait and switch. Wait, wait, you asked me for a drink. Jesus, no, no, but you need a drink from me. The question is, what is living water? Why, what does Jesus say? Why does Jesus say that? What, what is this living water? Why, why is Jesus using this, this term? And this is a metaphor. And if you have your scriptures, you don't need to turn there, but you can mark this down. All over the Old Testament, this is a common reference to what God is like. God is like living water. In Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, the prophet Jeremiah says this. God says this through Jeremiah. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Notice this, the fountain of living waters. And what does Jesus say? I will give you living water. Living waters is a reference to God himself. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, we see this. The prophet Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. If you're reading that, and like us, we're like, what in the world does that mean? It is always coming back and pointing back to God as the source of true life. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm not going to give you a physical drink. I'm going to give you an eternal drink, something you, you need me, and I have come for you to give you what you need. You would ask me, Samaritan woman, for a drink. You need me. We need God. So the bait and switch has occurred. Chap next chapter, the death of being found out. I just want us to picture ourselves in this moment. He's just said, and she's just going, okay, hey, give me this drink. She's like, okay, this is great, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus says in verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come here. Uh-oh. He has her, right? He has us here, right? Wait, wait, now he just saw right through me. And he goes, why does he go right after that? Go call your husband. She's like, uh, okay. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Not lying, Right? Can you imagine a spot? I, I remember this a bit with Stacy. Is like, what do I say? Hey, I've got some messy things. Uh, that would be true, but there's more. Jesus said to her, "You're right in saying you have no. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true." Now, here's what I want to do really quickly, because I, I want to make sure we don't read into this more than we see here. Others, you may have heard this before, like, oh, well, this woman was of ill repute and all these different things. You know, our text doesn't say that. So I don't want us to malign this woman in some way that the text just doesn't say. 
all right? Meaning like everyone will go, oh, she's a prostitute. The text doesn't say that. Jesus speaks to people in other ways and says, hey, your sins have been forgiven. He's not asking it. He seems a bit unaffected by this truth, but yet there's some shame here. There's a lot of things going on. We just don't know exactly why. But the point is, is Jesus presses into something that she was uncomfortable with. There was something going on that she felt a distance from God. She felt a distance from the people in her own community. But we just don't know exactly what that means. There's a lot of things that could mean. All right? And so Jesus sees this. This is this death of being found out. Oh, man. He sees everything right now. Ah, what do I do? Where do I go? Can you imagine this moment? Have you had a moment where you've been, like, found out in any way? It might be a small thing. You know that moment? I can see it in my kids when I know something. They're like, hey, did you do that? God, no. You're like, oh, you didn't do that? And they're like, did you, were you watching? He's like, mm-hmm. Like, oh, you see, I, I've seen their face. Like, y'all know what that's like, right? And here's this significant person. This woman still doesn't quite know who she's with, but something's going on with her. This encounter is starting to jar her a bit as it would jar every one of us. I think about this in my story with Stacy. I was like, man, I, now that I'm known, it's over. They're gonna leave me. This woman's primed in the same ways that we are. Like, okay, here's why there's a distance between me and everybody right now. And this guy has just named it. And she's not even sure yet that this is, she doesn't even know this is the Messiah yet. Being known is death. The missiles have launched and they're starting to hit. And she's going, yep, I've been here before. We know what that's like. I've been here before. My shame is before me. And when it's known, death. It's this distance. This is awful. Alan talked about this last week. We want to go back to the bushes and hide. That's why we hide because these missiles, they have, uh, they, they do damage. Next chapter, the Hail Mary. And I don't mean this in a Catholic sense. I mean this in a football sense. Just want to be clear. The woman said to him, I, I perceive you're a prophet. Something's starting to change with her. She's seeing something significant. And she says this, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. This is Mount Gerizim. This is the one where the, the, southern, the southern people kicked out the northerners, the Samaritans, then built this city. This is where they're going. And hey, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem, she's going to point probably to the south, right? She's saying in Jerusalem is the place where our people ought to worship. But here's the big thing that's going on right now. This is the Hail Mary. This is the last second. And over time, you're down by six. And you're just going to like, hey, this isn't looking good. I don't know what to do here. The last thing, I, the only thing I can do here, I've been caught. I've been seen. So, all right. I just, all right. You, you know what she's saying? My shame, my sin, my past, it's got to have somewhere to go. And she's just heaving that football all the way down the line, just praying that it gets caught, just praying that there's a chance, praying that there's some hope here. But this interaction between Jesus and this woman is an experienced reality of what God is like. The God man is in front of her. He is the embodiment of the good news. And so she's just trying to show, she's throwing some religious stuff. She knows some things and she's going, okay, I just need to, all right, I just need to worship. I need to do something. I got, hey, what do I need to do? The Hail Mary, the balls in the air. And Jesus is about to show her and is about to show me why a weary world can rejoice. He's about to lay it out for her. But this is the last second heave that she's done here. And right about now, the sin-wrecked world and the shame-scarred of this world is about to get some really good news. And the next chapter is the surprise. The Samaritan woman is going to find out 
indeed, her shame and her sin, just like you and me, it does have a place to go. It doesn't stay exposed. It doesn't just hang out there. Jesus said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, hope we catch the significance of this. They're having a deep theological conversation right now. He's saying, Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Samaritans had a lot of different gods, and they wouldn't have known who these gods were. And Jesus is saying, we worship the Jews of the South. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And here's the switch. Here's a surprise. But the hour is coming and is now here. you got to sit and imagine yourself in this spot. And it is now here. And she's going to be hanging on every word he's saying. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. She's still not yet fully understanding who he is. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he's going to sort all this stuff out for us because we're having a theological conversation right now. And she's going, here's my shame, and this is, but here's the surprise. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Like if there was a still frame, right? If we had a video, like everything's moving and all of a sudden it would just go, stops. And all of a sudden, this woman having a deep theological conversation with Jesus, he has just landed the knockout punch and the surprise of all surprises, everything that's known about her is she is now being told that she is in the presence of the promised one, the Messiah himself. He is staring at her in the eyes. Can you imagine that moment being known and exposed all in front of the Messiah himself? If he was right here right now looking at everything that you'd ever done, what would that be like? Kurt Thompson writes in his book, The Soul of Shame, the parts of us that feel most broken. My story with Stacy, my past, things I'm so ashamed of and have been guilty of, and, 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 and name the things for yourself. The parts of us that feel most broken, that we keep most hidden, are the parts that most desperately need to be known by God, as so they can be healed and loved. Let me read that one more time. The parts of us that feel most broken and that we keep most hidden are the parts that most desperately need to be known by God so as to be loved and healed. Friends, the incarnation is that God came to find you and me, that God came to find Adam and Eve and provide them an opportunity to be known as he knows everything else. For only in those instances when our shame parts, when our sinful parts are known, do they stand a chance to be redeemed. We can love God, we can love ourselves, and we can love others only to the degree that we are known by God and known by others. And here's the answer to that problem at the beginning. If someone knows me, they'll leave me. And what we see in John chapter 4 and all over the scriptures is that the gospel is the fact that no, Jesus really knows us and he doesn't leave. And in my story with Stacy, 
I got to taste that in one of the first times with the most sweetest taste coming to those waters and knowing what it's like to have my sin and my shame exposed to someone and then to be forgiven and then been brought in and for her not to leave, but to say, no, I love you. All of you helps me now to see this in a light where I look at John 4 and the good news of Jesus starts to explode for me in ways that I could only hope for in my deepest, wildest dreams. The worst of me is known and loved. The worst of you and everyone in this room and all of humanity is known by God and loved. But that's not really the only problem. The entire Bible is unequivocally about Jesus loves us. Jesus knows us fully. He's died for us. He's done everything that we couldn't do. So the question isn't, will someone know me and then leave me? The question is, what will we do with being known and loved by God? What will we do with that? That, my friends, for each of us in this room, that is the real problem. What are you going to do with that? We are confronted now with someone who knows every single thing about us. And we work so hard, we burn so much energy all the time trying to hide those things about ourselves, not letting God touch those and actually heal those. It's what he came for. Jesus says it over and over again. I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. And friends, what will you do with that? Does God have access to those things? There's two responses to this, and the scriptures show us both of these. What will you do with being known and loved by God? What will you do with that? Literally, not, not, not a head idea, but like literally, what will you live out from as we leave here today? What does the gospel really mean for you and for me? And the first response is to turn away. If you have your Bible, I want you to look at a verse. I think it's going to be on the screen. Mark 10. This is the rich young ruler. And I want to just point out this one verse. The rich young ruler is, yes, it's about money, but it's about being known by God. It's about being fully seen by God. And, and, and look at this. And Jesus looking at him. Don't move past this. Jesus looking at the rich young ruler. What did he do? He loved him. Why does Mark show us that? Mark is the most like expedient gospel we have. He's just getting these like cliff notes in the gospel. He's just moving quick. And he slows down enough to say, looking at him, loved him. He didn't need to put that in there. Mark wants us to see something. Jesus sees the rich young ruler and he's coming for him just like he's coming for the woman at the well, just like he's coming for you and me. And he looked at him, he looks at you and me and he loves us and he knows everything about us and he knows our deepest need is him and what's keeping us from that. What are we working so hard to push down? And he knows what this rich young ruler is working so hard to push down. And what does he say? And he said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all of this. Go sell the things that are, that are keeping you from, from really being known by me. What you need is me. Will you, be let, will you be known by me? Will you follow all of me? I know all of you. Come for all of me. And look what it says. It's looking at the Messiah, just like the woman at the well. And what does he do? 
disheartened. He was sad. He turned away and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He went back to the bushes, y'all. What are you going to do with the gospel? What does the gospel really mean? What is the incarnate? What, what is really good news? What can a weary world rejoice in? How many of us turn away from the good news? No, 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 but not that. Not that. It's like Stacy, even sharing with you. Yeah, not that stuff. Yeah, not that stuff. That's so gross. You don't understand. Or the second response. The second response is to trust, to believe, to lean in, to let God love you, all of you. He didn't die for parts of you. He died for all of us. John 4 shows us that when we are known and loved, that we are actually able to then be safe, loving, and inviting people. And as I close, I want us to see something else about this story. See, the problem isn't if someone really knows us, what will they do? The problem is, what are we going to do with being known and loved by God and by other people? And we've been hammering this over and over again because the scriptures hammer this over and over again. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. We saw two accounts, the Mark 10 and John 4. And the, what we saw in John 4 is that what happens is when we're known and loved and we start to believe that and we're going to see this shown, we become safe, loving, and inviting peoples ourselves. The great commission at the end when Jesus ascends into heaven right before he does, he gives this call. And he's telling you, invite people into this experience. Tell people what the incarnation really means and what it's really about. It's really good news. Tell a weary world they can rejoice because they're known and they're loved. They don't need to hide. They don't need to be sad. They can be glad. We can sing, rejoice. We can sing. We can celebrate because God himself looks us straight in the eye and knows every single thing about us. And he stays because he loves us. Is that not the Great Commission? Teach them to obey all I have commanded. Follow me. Invite someone. Invite your friend. Invite your family member. Invite your neighbor. Invite your coworker. The invitations we have for Christmas Eve, this isn't just for something fun and nostalgic. This is for them to have a chance to taste the one who has living water. A weary world can rejoice because there is living water being offered to all of us. Every single day, God is saying, come and take that. I have my, to be known is to have life and to be loved. Living waters give life and life abundantly. And is that not what it means when we are known fully and loved in that, that we can, be, we, can, we can start to taste the fullness that God has for us and for us to live in and to invite other people into that? Is there better news, friends? John 4, 39 through 42. This is the close of the book for this morning. Read this. This woman, I think, kind of becomes like the first evangelist. Listen to this. 
Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Listen to this. He told me everything I ever did. Who wants to start off with that? How is that good news? Let me tell you. Come and see a man. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two more days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, think about this. Can you imagine what this must be like? Is this, is this been an experience for you in your life when, you've, when someone has come to you and said, man, I, I know what this means. I understand the gospel now. I know what it means to be loved and cared for. I know what it means to be fully known. I know what it means to have the gospel be good news. And they said it to the woman, it is no longer because of just what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Friends, to be known by God is to have life and to be loved. That is how a weary world can rejoice. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the reality that, Lord, we don't need to hide. Father, it's so easy for us to hide. It's so easy for me to hide, God. I feel it all the time, God. But as we open your word, as we are confronted with the truth about who you are, Father, shame's missiles no longer have the same effect anymore. You've decimated, Lord, the only thing that they had to do, which was to first accuse us that they would cause death. And Lord, you with a living water have said, nope, that's only part of the truth. I have come to give life, not death. So being known will not kill you. Being known by me will actually give you eternal life. And Father, I pray, I know there's some in this room this morning who have never tasted living water. Maybe they've been around church for years and years and years and they've never tasted living water. And so, Father, I pray this morning as we've opened up and seen the story of this woman, of you with this woman in Samaria, God, that they read themselves that you have come after them this morning and you offer living water. That to be known is not death, to be known is to have true life and life eternal by trusting in what you have done, God, through your son, Jesus. That is the gift of Christmas that we celebrate, Lord. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, would you move? What do we do as Isaiah 55? Come, come to the waters, come to you and taste. And Lord, to be satisfied. Father, I pray for us as a church community, God, to continue for those of us who believe in the gospel, Father, not to believe in part of it, not to believe only in our heads, but Lord, to live out as a Samaritan woman, to go come and see a man who knows everything about me and to call our friends and our neighbors, all of them to come and taste this water together. And Lord, thank you for putting us here. Thank you for giving us Herndon High School and Lord, any other place that we get to gather, Lord, to be a light in the dark here, God, and to call people to this. Lord, help us to continue to grow and to be a safe place to be known and loved because you're safe to be known and loved by. Oh God, help us. Holy Spirit, help us. Continue to grow us and strengthen us in this way. And we thank you for the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name.